Ahoy crew, and welcome to installment number 15 of our crew member only episodes. The best name that I could come up with for today's episode is simply The Ships of Theseus. Today we are going to consider a most famed of ancient Greek heroes and just how his mythology may have been used by Simon and by Athens to kind of help cement their imperial ambitions and their leadership of the Delian League throughout the 400s BCE. The nutshell version of where I think that we will end up today is something along these lines, although along the way as we get there, we will also cover the myths tied to Theseus and perhaps some other ones too, just so that we can more fully appreciate why he became a focal point for Athens during that period of their imperial growth. Then, we will also tie the mythology to how it was depicted by the ancient Greeks and how it was used by ancient Athenian leadership. In short, there's a pretty solid argument to be made that our modern perspective of the Greco-Persian Wars as a whole is a bit skewed, and that's because ancient writers in the centuries afterward were trying to draw a clear and obvious thread, tie it through to their own history up to that point, and to the times in which they were writing. Their goal being really to explain a few things. One, to explain how and why the Persian Wars down to the Peloponnesian War, why during that time Athens became a sea power. But then two, why that was actually crucial to Greece as a whole defeating Xerxes and Persia. And then number three, their goal was to make it seem like Athens was always destined to become a sea power empire, and that Athens was the main reason why Greece was not just subsumed by Persia. Especially when we talk about the Peloponnesian War and how Athens grew into an empire through the Delian League's evolution, Ancient myths were utilized by Athenian leadership to make their position popular and more widely accepted, at least insofar as their citizens and their allies go. I think it's apparent that Sparta might not have bought in fully. In many ways, then, it's what you could effectively view as a branding campaign. Uh, some would even use the term propaganda if they want to go so far as to label it like that. As we have said throughout our podcast so far, Persia was always cast as the sole foreign specter against which all of Greece had to stand. That thread, that depiction, is very clear throughout the writings of Herodotus and even then through into the Pentacontitia, that is the first book in Thucydides' treatment of the Peloponnesian War. And this thread, this depiction, indicates that the Delian League used the threat of Persia as its unifying focus in the years and the decades after that war mostly concluded. As we've begun to see in the main podcast episodes, at some point in the 460s BCE, Persia was driven from Anatolia, they were pretty soundly beaten. And then despite the Greek misstep in Egypt against Artaxerxes, Persia largely ceased to be a direct threat to Greek interests in the Aegean world. At that point, the question emerged. What is the Delian League doing if Persia isn't a threat? 
why is Athens continuing to build up naval and imperial ambitions if the supposed threat has been extinguished? One answer to these questions evolved in the 5th century BCE, and that's really what we're going to try to shed some light on today. It is essentially Athens plucking from myths that already existed at that time and using those myths to give their naval power a creation story, to give it roots in Greek history, but then to also turn it into a banner for the common people to rally around and give them something to support the continued expansion and to really make it look like the continued expansion and the continuance of Athens' naval ambition was a necessity and that the people had to get on board. To get the ball rolling for us today, let's jump right in with a passage from Plutarch, taken from his Life of Theseus. In the first portion of the episode today, we will consider the Theseus myths just straight down the line. We'll take a look at the ancient sources, take them at relative face value, just to help get our feet wet, and then later on today we will circle back to look at things through a more critical lens, and to consider how the Athenians might have used, and perhaps even have altered, the mythology to help better serve as propaganda, I guess, to support their imperial expansion. So then, here is a passage from Plutarch. It's a little bit lengthy, but it is still useful. Plutarch writes, quote, And after the Median Wars, in the Archonship of Phaedo, when the Athenians were consulting the oracle at Delphi, they were told by the Pythian priestess to take up the bones of Theseus, give them honorable burial at Athens, and guard them there. But it was difficult to find the grave and take up the bones because of the inhospitable and savage nature of the Dilopians, who then inhabited the island. However, Simon took the island, as I have related in his life, and being ambitious to discover the grave of Theseus, he saw an eagle in a place where there was the semblance of a mound, pecking, as he says, and tearing up the ground with his talons. By some divine ordering, he comprehended the meaning of this, and dug there, and there was found a coffin of a man of extraordinary size, a bronze spear lying by its side, and a sword. When these relics were brought home on his trireme by Simon, the Athenians were delighted, and received them with splendid processions and sacrifices, as though Theseus himself were returning to his city. And now he lies buried in the heart of the city, near the present gymnasium, and his tomb is a sanctuary and a place of refuge for runaway slaves and all men of low estate who are afraid of men in power, since Theseus was a champion and helper of such during his life, and graciously received the supplications of the poor and needy. The chief sacrifice which the Athenians make in his honor comes on the eighth day of the month Pionepsion, the day on which he came back from Crete with the youths. But they honor him also on the eighth day of the other months, either because he came to Athens in the first place, from Troizen, on the eighth day of the month of Hecatombion, as Diodorus the topographer states, or 
because they consider this number more appropriate for him than any other, since he was said to be a son of Poseidon. Let's aim now just to unpack things a little bit. In essence, Plutarch's version indicates that at some point following the Persian War in Greece, Athens consulted the oracle at Delphi. Doing that was a pretty popular pastime in ancient Greece, as you no doubt have heard. The oracle here told Athens that they had to find, recover, and then worship the bones of Theseus. This seemed like a tall task at first, the way the myth is presented, and that is of course because no one at that point knew where Theseus had actually been buried. But then, as we read, during the campaigns of the Delian League around the Aegean, an omen in the form of an eagle happened to lead Simon straight to the spot where he then duly unearthed the gigantic bones of the hero along with his weapons. And the rest is history. Or at least we'll scrutinize that in a few moments. Before we can really appreciate why the Oracle and Simon and Athens even cared so much about the bones of this dude Theseus, maybe we should just take a stroll through the high points of his mythical life. If we were to try to cobble together a rough chronology of Greek myth, then Theseus probably lived and did his heroic deeds in the generation right before the Trojan War, somewhere in that vicinity. If he was even an actual person, we must keep in mind. He was revered by later Athens as being the one who unified the various tribes or deems of Attica into a single political unit. So in this way, Simon and Athens, they probably chose to focus on re-elevating the Theseus mythology because it did contain that element of unification behind a single leading city. Athens, as you know, was again trying to unify a wider number of Greek cities behind themselves as the leader of the Delian League, or as the leader of the Empire in some ways, too. There's a lot of mythological backstory about how Theseus unified Athens, but for both ancient audiences and then for us today, his more heroic and dramatic acts are certainly those that hold the most interest. So let's focus on those. For starters, he was partially descended from Poseidon, as Plutarch alluded to, and that's in addition to his human royal lineage. So from the very start, we can see that the Theseus mythology does have some connections to the sea god of ancient Greece, along with Athens. It's far more complicated than that, and there are various versions of mythology but getting tangled up in the intricacies of those and all the rest, that just is not our goal today here. Rather, it will be most useful to fast forward to the most well-known myth that is tied to Theseus and to Athens. You might already know it. It's the myth of Theseus and the Minotaur. A brief recap is always beneficial, so let's do that now. This myth goes that in the ancient past, Athens was engaged in a war against Crete, and the mythological king of Crete, King Minos. We've talked about in episodes a long while back now, actually, how King Minos may be the mythological image of the time when Crete 
and the Minoans, where they get the name, they were indeed the maritime masters of the Aegean in ancient history. So, the myth involving Theseus probably has roots going all the way back to those times, and it really is the attempt of later writers to tie a thread from ancient Minoan thalassocracy down to the later sea power empire that Athens developed. In any event, Athens was defeated by Minos in that mythical war, and one of the punishments was that Athens had to pay an annual tribute of seven maidens and seven young men to the king so that he could keep a steady food supply coming in so his minotaur would eat well. The minotaur was, of course, the creature, half-man and half-bull, and he apparently ate humans. The minotaur had been locked inside the palace labyrinth Akonosos, and each year, this ritual where Athens gave human tribute was played out. Well, Theseus, when he learned what Athens had been forced to do, he determined himself to put an end to it all. He volunteered to be one of the youths sent as tribute. But since he knew what he was getting into, he also determined to slay the Minotaur and free Athens from the tribute. Before he left Athens, it was agreed that if he should succeed, the ship's crew was to hoist a white sail upon their return journey. But if Theseus were to unfortunately die during his effort to kill the Minotaur, the crew was to hoist a black sail on the way home. The short version of the remainder of this myth is that he did indeed succeed in killing the Minotaur, thanks in part to the fact that he fell in love with the daughter of King Minos, Ariadne, who herself helped Theseus use the ball of yarn trick to navigate the labyrinth and then find his way back out in the end. On the return voyage from Crete, though, Theseus left Ariadne on the island of Naxos, and there are a number of different versions of the myth that kind of branch off from that point. One of them sees Theseus re-approach Athens. He's returning home at the conclusion of his journey, but he apparently forgot to raise the white sails that had been agreed to at the start. He had black sails hoisted instead. When the king of Athens, his father, saw these, he assumed that Theseus was dead, and in a wave of grief, King Aegis threw himself off a cliff into the sea and died. It's from King Aegis that the Aegean Sea derives its name, supposedly, and it is from that event as well that Theseus became the mythical king of Athens, and from there he is able to unify everyone afterward. So, despite the main focus of this myth being on a showdown with a mythical monster, we can still see that a sail and a ship play a role in the myth, and that some of the characters give their names to important bodies of water in ancient Greece, names that still exist to this day. There is, again, as we said, the ties back to the ancient origins of Aegean Sea power, with the connections to Crete and to the Minoans also. There are a number of other myths that involve Theseus undertaking heroic exploits around the Aegean. There are his six labors, as they're called. These actually take place before the Minotaur myth if we're sticking strictly to the mythological timeline. 
there are parallels between those heroic acts of Theseus and the way that the heroic labors of Heracles or Hercules also unfold. They even have the same name. So some historians have argued that both of these heroes and their labors have similar roots and roles in the mythology of the ancient Near East. All of this is great, it's interesting, but what's the actual point as far as Theseus and his myths are concerned with Athens and then Simon as we mentioned at the top? It all ties back to that passage from Plutarch where Simon and Athens fortuitously discovered the bones of this great ancient Athenian hero at the same time that they were rather brutally laying siege to the island of Naxos a place that had previously been part of the Delian League, but if you'll recall, was then among the first islands to try and leave the League altogether. Athens moved to put down this rebellion as they saw it, and then Plutarch describes that during the campaign, they also moved to take advantage of local mythology tied to Athens, and to thereby try and justify everything they were then doing. It's quite likely that the timing is not exactly the way Plutarch describes. He was, in fact, writing his history at least 250 years after the fact, and he was no doubt basing his versions or his sources on the writings of others who had come before him in large part. So it seems entirely reasonable and possible that the co-opting of the Theseus mythology to help justify Athenian imperialism, it probably unfolded and this story, this co-opting, grew over the course of decades, perhaps even centuries. Simon may have been involved in some early stages of this process to use mythology as justification for Athenian expansion, but he was not the only one, and he was probably early in the process. Be that all as it may, we do know that a shrine to Theseus existed in Athens at least as early as 550 BCE, and we will circle back a bit later on to look at the possibility that a ship used by Theseus, or at least attributed to him, was also present in Athens in a place of public worship. The artistic depictions of Theseus, though, are the thing that really allow us to see how his image and its usage evolved in Athenian public life, and what the evolution might indicate. I'm the first to admit I am woefully unqualified to begin wading into these waters. There is a fair bit of research and scholarly work available out there about Greek pottery and the art that decorates it. That is probably the best source for this discussion. There are some others, but I'll try to sum it up in my understanding in brief. The majority of Theseus depictions that exist prior to 525 BCE or so, they focus on largely the myth that we already talked about, involving Theseus and his defeat of the Minotaur. That really isn't too surprising, given that particular myth's popularity and its clear staying power. Around 525 BCE, the depictions and the stories to which they are connected, they begin to grow a bit more diverse. They begin to incorporate references to the various heroic deeds of Theseus, 
which we said are vaguely similar to those of Heracles. There are some scholars out there who tie the timing of this shift in how the image of Theseus is used, and they indicate that this change, this evolution, shows us that he, his image begins to be used in more of a political sense, as a way for the Athenian leader, Pisistratus especially, to help his own star rise. The theory goes basically that Pisistratus was among the first Athenian leaders to begin to purposefully transform Theseus into a hero figure. And we know this because Pisistratus encouraged the Athenians to identify his personal actions and accomplishments with the deeds of Theseus in the mythology. The next step further gets us to the way in which myth becomes reality and the way in which they can inform one another. Basically, if precedents were lacking for Pisistratus to model his deeds after those of an ancient hero, he just invented the deeds of an ancient hero, and these deeds were often kind of modeled after the deeds of Heracles, as we said, so that could perhaps explain why the Theseus labors do follow those of Heracles so closely. And really, this happened with enough frequency, partially because Pisistratus invented these new ones. It happened often enough that the historian Plutarch just calls Theseus, quote, this other Heracles. So even just a few centuries removed, ancient writers could see the trend of Theseus mythology evolving and kind of being modeled after even older and other mythology, but being done so to help contemporary politicians in ancient Athens. There is of course much more to it than this, but the consensus among scholars who study really the iconographic evolution in Greek art and mythical representation, along with the political evolution. They conclude that the growth of Athenian democracy in the mid-6th century BCE, it can be seen if you follow the increased use of mythical heroes and other myths as they are used to represent the new Athenian institutions. They are used in artwork and in other ways to lend these new political institutions a borrowed heritage. And in doing this, it's an attempt to really achieve more popularity among the common people by tying new institutions with ancient popular mythology. Really then, on one level, Theseus became an Athenian hero, depicting how they unified tribes and then unified cities under the banner of the Delian League. On another level, Theseus was used by politicians to show their personal heroism as they undertook deeds similar to those of Theseus, deeds like conquering territory especially. If that didn't work, the politicians just borrowed myths to loosely fit something that they had already done. I mean, what's the real difference? That is, I'm sure, boiled down to the point of oversimplification, but that's kind of what I came away with from reading a few articles. It is a rough evolution as well, but it's fair to say that all of this kind of came to a crescendo when Simon took power in Athens and when the Delian League and Athenian influence was truly expanding under his oversight. A prime example is of course seen in that myth from Plutarch we read earlier, where Simon discovers the bones of Theseus, conveniently so, and brings them back to Athens. 
the Pythia had prophesied that this would happen, right? So in taking the step, Simon then made the worship of Theseus and his elevation as an Athenian hero formal and indisputable. The art and the iconography that surround the elevation of Theseus in Athens at this time, the time of Simon, they are particularly interesting and worth examining, I think. Remember, Simon followed in the wake of the Athenian naval leader Themistocles, and there are many ways that Simon stood opposed to the policy choices of Themistocles. But Simon became the leader who made continued expansion of the Delian League a reality, and in so doing, he gave the common Athenian more outlets with which or in which to prosper. In some ways, then, we can see over the course of his life and the way things played out in the end, the military exploits of Simon almost undercut his own domestic policy positions. That's interesting to me. It's kind of a separate discussion, though. Today, we care more about how Simon used art and mythology to lend the image of Theseus toward justifying expansion of the Delian League. Well, basically, after the bones of Theseus were supposedly brought back to Athens and there enshrined, Simon ensured that art decorated the shrine to help serve as a front and center reminder to the worshippers of what Theseus had done and why it mattered. The overall mythology is too complex for us to worry about deeply, I think. A portion of it that was often depicted in public art in ancient Greece is known as the Amazonomachiae. Hopefully I pronounced that right. It's a word that means the Amazon battles. It alludes to a variety of ancient Greek myths that involve the Greek conflict with the Amazons, a group of all-female hunters and warriors who often came into conflict with famous Greek heroes of myth. They are mentioned all throughout Greek mythology, but they come into particular focus here because they were said to have crossed paths with Theseus. He actually abducts Hippolyta in one version, and he claims her as his wife. She was an Amazon queen. This touches off an entire war where Athens defeats the Amazons too. The reason that these depictions of the Amazons are consequential is because the Amazons were often cast in the role of being the savage or the barbarian race, as opposed to the civilized and progressive Athenians or Greeks. Maybe you can already guess where this is going then. Following the Greco-Persian Wars, and as the Delian League sought to expand, their nominal enemy was still Persia, the empire and the people who Herodotus often referred to as barbarians. Once Simon was in power in Athens, and the goal of that city and its alliance came into focus, they began to use Theseus as the figurehead of public representations of the Amazon battles. But in these artworks, the Amazons were understood really to represent the Persians. In either case, Athens was the victor over the barbarian warriors of the east. There were even specific murals that we read about painted in the shrine to Theseus in Athens, and they depicted, among other things, Theseus recovering King Minos's ring from the bottom of the sea. They also depicted a battle against the Amazons. 
and then also the rescue from Hades of Theseus, drawing parallels between Simon and Theseus, Simon, of course, and Athens of that time, who triumphed at sea and overcame foreign or eastern enemies. We don't unfortunately have any remaining depictions of this artwork, except for textual descriptions that ancient writers gave us, ancient writers who saw the artwork described. This also goes for the place built by Simon that came to be known as the Stoa Poikile, or the Painted Porch. This place was also built in Athens by Simon during the same time frame, and it famously contained other paintings that depicted mythical heroes, including more depictions of Theseus and the Amazons. In the same Stoa was a predominant painting of the Battle of Marathon, which really is the best tie that we have between Athenian ideas about the Amazons and then putting those depictions right alongside a depiction of their own victory over Persia. Unfortunately, ships don't factor too heavily in these depictions, other than there are some Phoenician ships that appear on one end of the mural, and they show Persian soldiers trying to flee and escape by ship, but they are cut down before they can get away. There are a lot more rabbit trails that we could pursue, including similar depictions of Theseus later in the Parthenon and in the Hephaestion. But for now, I think the point has been made and we can just refocus on one last ship myth before we wrap things up today. My last point here, though, is to say that there is a cynical jab we could take at Athens if we point out their myth-making and their temple-building it really was only possible because of the wealth that they had gotten access to thanks to the Delian League and the membership fees and all of that that came with it. Promoting myths and building grandiose temples to try and justify the League's expansion and its continued existence, it was really a move to try and convince Greece that all of that expansion had been necessary to try to protect them and using myths and building temples to make this justification possible, all of this really is an Athenian bid to try and kind of seize the religious narrative in that ancient day. We haven't really mentioned it on the podcast yet, but Greece concluded a treaty with Persia in 450 BCE, and then only four years before that, Athens actually moved the treasury of the Delian League off the island of Delos, and they brought it back to Athens, so they had direct physical control over all of the Delian League's money. After they concluded peace with the only actual enemy of the Delian League, Persia, Athens then chose to invite all of the Greeks in the League to Athens for a congress to try and work out a way forward, to try and convince everyone that there even needed to be a way forward. One scholar then writes this. He writes, quote, Pericles had plans for the funds accumulated in the treasury. Shortly before, he had proposed that a congress of Greek cities gather at Athens in order to deliberate, among other topics, the rebuilding of the temples. It was a masterstroke of propaganda. By attending the congress, the other Greeks would effectively cede to Athens the hegemony over relation with the gods. Basically then, the temple-building campaign that resulted produced 
temples that are still visited even to this very day. So I would really say it, it seems like Pericles did pull one over on everybody. Anyway, all that aside, let's get back to ships, which is why we're here, right? The most famed myth involving Theseus and his ships, it's really both a myth and a philosophical thought experiment. It isn't too deep, at least just the nutshell version isn't. Uh, so hopefully the statement about philosophy didn't scare you off too fast. The place in the overall mythology, it's pretty straightforward. If you remember an element of the Minotaur story involving Theseus, it involved him leaving Athens on a ship and arranging then to return with either a black sail or a white sail, depending on how things panned out for him on Crete. The ship was also the transport for most of his other exploits around the Aegean. So in time, this specific ship, it came to be known simply as the ship of Theseus. Plutarch then says that over the course of time, that specific and particular ship that was tied to the heroic exploits of Theseus, it was preserved in Athens, possibly at the shrine of Theseus or in that vicinity, as a memorial to the great hero. But then, beyond that, it also served a practical purpose, and that meant that it required practical attention. The ship was described by Plutarch as a 30-oared galley, so in that way it does indeed resemble the smaller oared galley style that was used during Mycenaean times prior to the invention and the spread of the trireme. It's a triaconter, we could say, and this specific triaconter was possibly the same one that classical Athens knew as the Delius. The name of the ship was the Delius. The association here is a smidge speculative. I want to make sure that's clear, but the theory is kind of reasonable, and it definitely helps tie our discussion together. Here's why the ship Delius matters. The mythology all includes a point that Athens made this pledge if Theseus did indeed succeed in his mission to slay the Minotaur and thereby free Athens from their burden of tribute. Before he left, they pledged to honor the god Apollo every year. So when Theseus did indeed slay the monster, Athens began the annual practice of sending a delegation to the island of Delos the same island where the Delian League later was founded and centered. We saw this alluded to in the passage from Plutarch earlier. They did this annual sacrifice, this annual journey, on the day when Theseus was supposed to have landed back in Athens on his ship with the ewes that he had rescued by slaying the Minotaur. Now, on the island of Delos, one of Apollo's most sacred sanctuaries was on that island. So that's probably why the League and Athens focused on that location, and then why Athens sent their sacred ship there each year to commemorate the victory of Theseus. So over the course of time then, the ship that made this voyage, it came to be known as the Delius. We cannot, of course, prove any connection between this ship, Delius, and then the connection that some have proposed, that this same sacred ship was the same one that Theseus used in some kind of possible ancient historical root of mythology. 
The story goes that that ship may have been preserved in Athens and used every year to make this voyage to worship Apollo. It's hard to untangle if Theseus may have just been a myth, but that somebody used the ship in actual physical reality to represent the mythology, it's hard to tell, as I said. By the time Plutarch was writing several centuries later, though, the mythical and the practical seem to have melded a little bit as they tend to do. And that is how we then arrive at this thought experiment involving the so-called ship of Theseus. If we take the existence of the ship and its root in Theseus mythology as perhaps having actually happened at some point, then we have to concede the fact that using the same ship to make an annual sacred voyage, it would obviously require some practical maintenance. The components of a wooden vessel are obviously not impervious to time or nature. Repairs were done, in theory, and rotten or damaged planking and other parts, rope, I'm sure, they were replaced as needs required. To read the conclusion of that passage from Plutarch, then, we find that, quote, the 30-oared galley was preserved by the Athenians down to the time of Demetrius Phalerus. They took away the old timbers from time to time and put new and sound ones in their places, so that the vessel became a standing illustration for the philosophers of the logical question of things that grow, some declaring that it remained the same, others that it was not the same vessel. He obliquely alludes to it all there, so what's the actual question he is referencing? It's essentially a question of identity, if we boil it down. As things change over time, as pieces of something that has a whole essence are replaced by new pieces, and those pieces are fashioned to fit the same space and function, when exactly is it that the object or person as a whole ceases to become itself, or the thing that we used to know, at least. In theory, if every component of the ship of Theseus is replaced over a long span of time, is it still in fact the ship of Theseus? Or is it a new ship that merely appears the same? And where is the line when which crossed denotes this change, if there even is the line? I'm not a scholar of Greek pottery. I'm also not a philosopher. So to delve into this whole question too deeply would be painful for all of us, myself foremost. Really, the simple essence is that this thought experiment applies to inanimate objects and to people. It has obviously then been a question among philosophers for millennia now. There isn't a clear answer, as there often isn't in philosophical thought experiments. The myth and the question are actually discussed by Socrates in Plato's Phaedo, his writing, and the sacred ship was actually at Delos on the day before Socrates was put to trial in this version that we have from Plato. This philosophical thought experiment is put to Socrates and he is asked basically whether it is the same ship or it is not the same ship if all the parts have been replaced. And his answer rather cryptically is just, quote, theoretically, it is still the same ship. Based on that terse answer, 
Some also refer to this ship not as the ship of Theseus, but as the theoretical ship. There is then also one particular ancient depiction that likely shows a version of the ship of Theseus, although I doubt they had the philosophical aspect of this all in mind. This depiction appears on the Francois vase, and the vase is painted in the attic black figure style. The specific piece here is dated to around 565 BCE. Clearly, from this piece, even before the time of Themistocles and Simon, the Theseus myth was well enough known to be depicted on pottery. In the depiction, it really seems to be a triaconter, just as was described by Plutarch. The stern post of the ship appears to be shaped like the heads of two swans, and the prow of the ship has a boar's head type decoration. There's not a whole lot remarkable beyond this, otherwise it's just a basic triaconter in the shape we would expect. But we can see that the ship is making landfall, the mast is lowered, and there's one person already rushing onto the shore, another person has dived into the water to also get to shore faster, it seems. The remainder of the people who are still aboard the ship appear to be thanking the heavens or something to that effect that they have landed, that they have survived. So the general interpretation of this scene is that it shows the ship of Theseus and the eleven youths that he rescued by slaying the Minotaur. They are probably landing in Athens at the end of their return voyage, so it ties back to the passages from Plutarch to the Minotaur mythology, and then how that was used later on by Athens. I will post pictures of this vase. There are a ton of ancient Greek myths depicted all around the entire piece, so it's very fascinating for a number of reasons, but I appreciate the fact that the ship of Theseus probably makes an appearance on this piece as well. The vase actually was discovered in an Etruscan tomb in central Italy, so in a different way it's a prime example of how Greek mythological symbolism had already begun to spread throughout the ancient Mediterranean world, even prior to the rise of Athens or their naval empire. It's a testament to the spread of Attic pottery and the trade of it, basically. Beyond that piece, though, the ship of Theseus paradox as a question and as a debate, it still exists and it finds relevant usage even today. I have heard and I've read some commentary on this, but I haven't actually watched the show yet myself. Apparently, though, the ship of Theseus paradox and some later treatments of it by a uh, more modern-day philosophers, Thomas Hobbes is one. These apparently are plot points in the show WandaVision, and that kind of intrigues me. I'll have to make a point to watch that show now. Maybe if any of you have watched it and want to share your thoughts about how they used the ship of Theseus ideas in the show, I'd be really interested to hear about that. There are a lot of other examples that illustrate this paradox outside of just ancient Greek mythology. So, really, uh, we can see again just from that, Greek mythology and Athenian naval strength, they show how they also have staying power through the ancient evolution of societies all the way up to today. One modern example of the staying power of this thought experiment, and then we really will have exhausted the points that I had prepared today.
There's a modern example of this paradox in the deep ocean research submarine that was used to explore the wreck of the Titanic, among other achievements that it has made. This sub is known as Alvin. It was also used to explore hydrothermal vents deep in the Pacific Ocean. What does Alvin have to do with this, though? Well, just like this ship of Theseus, mythological or otherwise, Alvin has, over the course of its career, had every single component replaced at least one time. In this case, we know that the ship is actually real, and it's been well documented that every piece was replaced, thanks to the engineers who designed, built, and maintained the thing. So, the question still remains, is Alvin still Alvin? The overall design is the same, Everyone calls it by the same name, and it serves the same function, even though it maybe has actually seen some upgrades over the years. Can we answer the question, though? I certainly can't. Well, that really does wrap it up. Like I said, it's been a bit of a winding path for us today on this member episode, but I hope it's been worthwhile and that you may have found something valuable somewhere along the way. Really not much at all from me in addition at the end here, other than just to thank you once again for your generous support and patronage of the podcast. I am planning to ramp up our new series of Shipwreck Saturday episodes on an upcoming Saturday, and while there are so many shipwrecks we could possibly choose from, it is slightly tempting to just jump right into the deep end since the wreck of Shackleton's Endurance was just announced in the recent past couple days and weeks. I'm struggling to find that balance of how much depth to go into and what to focus on on this series of episodes, since we will just tackle one wreck each month. We'll see how things go. I do think that a shipwreck for which we have a bit more information widely available, that might be a better start and give us more to talk about, but we will see how that all plays out. Otherwise, I'm going to continue forging ahead with regular episodes too. We are now reaching the true Peloponnesian War, and my current thinking is to wrap up the life of Simon, the first Peloponnesian War, and that peace with Persia that we talked about today. I'll wrap that up in episode 44 of the podcast, and then I think it might be interesting to spend an episode or two on cultural more general aspects of what a sailor in the Athenian navy might have dealt with on average as he navigated the ancient world and the ancient port city of Piraeus. There really is a lot there that I've enjoyed learning about and even getting into things like common health issues that we know about and which were specific to rowers on an Athenian trireme. These are things that I didn't know much at all about in the past, I've gotten some tidbits together through the course of research, and I think we could make something interesting and unique there. Let me know what you think about that plan, but that is the plan for now. They would be a bit more loose format episodes, not necessarily fixated on chronology, and that might be a nice breath of fresh air. Otherwise, that is just a little window into the process for you all. That's all I've got. Thank you for sticking around, crew. And until we talk again, fair winds and following seas to each of you.
If you like what you heard today, consider visiting the podcast website at MaritimeHistoryPodcast.com. There you will find maps, transcripts, source lists, and explanatory images for each and every episode. Also, this podcast is free and independent, and the site has information about how you can join the crew and help support the podcast. As part of my thanks to you, crew members gain access to bonus episodes, a growing timeline, and early access to regular episodes. So consider joining the crew if you like what you've heard. Many thanks to those of you who have already joined up. Your support goes a long way toward keeping the podcast in ship shape. Thanks.